This is a conspiracy channel. Welcome to the Hush Channel. Spanning a sprawling area of approximately 47,000 square miles across Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, encased by its borders of the mighty Mississippi River to its east and the Ozark Plateau to its west, and defined by its rolling hills, deep valleys, picturesque rivers, scenic landscapes, lush, chanting forests, and captivating limestone formations, nestled within the heartland of America, lies a region of the Appalachian Mountains known as the Ozarks. It is a rather captivating terrain that weaves together the beauty of nature with a rich tapestry of history while serving as an ode to nature's artistry. But oh, this beauty has its beasts. And as above, so below, there is something beneath these mountains. What lies beneath there? Beneath, beneath, beneath there. Beneath that land. Wild caves are caves that have little to no provisions, making these caves hard to navigate and access for the general public. If these caves happen to be accessible, they should not be attempted to navigate without extensive preparation, as wild caves are cesspools for many dangers, even for the most knowledgeable, prepared, and experienced of cavers. The Ozarks happens to host two of the top 10 states with the most caves. Missouri with 7,300 plus caves that we know of, and Arkansas which has over 2,000 documented caves, most of these 2,000 being located within the Ozark region and most being labeled as wild caves. There are many who have just no clue how large, lengthy, and deep caves can be. People who have never stopped and thought twice about such a thing. To put things into perspective, in 1781, French military officer and explorer Leclerc Melford led hundreds of Creek indigenous through a series of caverns near the Red River, which passes through Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and Texas. The Creek told Melford that their ancestors had once emerged from the center of the earth to the surface from this very same cavern, a narrative that is shared amongst many of the indigenous worldwide. Milford himself noted that these caverns could easily contain between 15,000 to 20,000 families. These are the types of numbers that make large societies. And this is just the part of the cave that Milford saw. Imagine what he had not seen in the vast spaces there and the potential inhabitants thereof. The Choctaw people of Mississippi also have a myth of underground origins. They believe that their ancestors emerged from the Naniwaya Cave Mound, a 50-foot-tall natural geological formation which is hidden in a swampy forest area, approximately a mile and a half east of a better-known artificial mound and tourist site. The hill has several natural openings, some of which have been sealed up. The Park Service seems to have no good explanation for this, and it is said by the Choctaw to be the entrance to a vast underground realm. One legend has it, in ancient times, the Choctaw were invaded by a race of red and blonde-haired white-skinned giants who bore sharp clubs, swords, and axes, and wore an extra thick skin, chain, or leather mail, which made them impervious to arrow, spear, and war club. Add the touch that some of these Nahulu, or giants, had horns, and these white invaders sound suspiciously like wandering Norsemen. 
Whatever their origin or identity might have been, these invaders drove the Choctaw into hiding, and the Choctaw went into the cave mound for several generations. The world beneath the mound was a large series of caverns through which a river or rivers ran. The Naniwaya Cave Mound sits squarely at the headquarters of the Pearl River. The Pearl River is a river in the U.S. states of Mississippi and Louisiana. It forms in Neshoba County, Mississippi, from the confluence of Naniwaya and Tallahega Creeks and has a winding length of 444 miles. The lower part of this river forms part of the boundary between Mississippi and Louisiana. Some traditions indicate that it went on to connect to other worlds or underground places. Staying underground for many generations, the Choctaw emerged to wage a form of guerrilla warfare on their enemies, eventually winning by using darts coated with a poison made from the mushrooms found in the caverns. Victorious, they emerged again into the sunlit world. One tradition holds that this emergence of a generation of people who have been born underground is the basis for the mound origin myth and that in fact the Choctaw had arrived centuries earlier after leaving a sunken land which had foundered in a distant western ocean, presumably the Pacific Ocean's lost continent of Mu, whose sinking is the reason for the ring of fire around all the lands that touch the Pacific Ocean to date. After many wanderings and travails, they arrived in the southeast, where they found the natural cavern mound which would later serve as a place of refuge. But other Choctaw beliefs dispute this, claiming that not just the Choctaw, but the Muscogee, Cherokee, and Chickasaw peoples emerged from the mound as well, having all been one people in the underworld. Today, the Choctaw still believe that a variety of strange supernatural beings either inhabit the cave mile or dwell in the wooded hills that surround it. One of these is the Shampai, a hair-covered man-like giant who has a terrible odor and who stays underground during the day. The Shampai is a sort of Sasquatch, but the underworld connection is there. Also present are the Kawanakasha, also called Bopoli, stone thrower, a type of supernatural and mercurial dwarf. These live within not just the woods of Mississippi, but within the cave mound itself. Like the Norse dwarves, they are the hoarders of vast knowledge. The mound is also the home of giant serpents and perhaps a host of other beings. Among the latter is the Nalusa Falea, or long black being, who is humanoid yet slides on his stomach like a snake. His pointed ears only accentuate his reptilian appearance. Another variant is the Nalusa Chito, big black being, who emerges from underground dens to capture women and children, presumably for supper. But this abduction scenario is by now a familiar one and is very similar to the abduction and changeling accounts of Celtic and Scandinavian tradition, which were often for purposes of maintaining genetic diversity. The goblin, Hokukolonte Shi, is a shape-shifting creature believed to haunt the region as well and is very similar to the Puka or Buka of the British Isle. So are the Nalusa twins for that matter. While this information pertains to the Choctaw Mississippi, which is outside of the Ozarks, it also pertains to the Ozark region as will be shown throughout this tape and ladder tapes. Independence County, Arkansas emerged in October of 1820, branching off from its roots in Lawrence County in northern Arkansas. This county's name does draw inspiration from the Declaration of Independence. While its terrain is characterized by undulating hills, apart from its fertile farmlands of its southeastern river delta, Independence County predominantly features these rolling hills forming the foothills of the Ozarks. The county was historically home to several indigenous, primarily the Osage, Quapaw, and Cadot people. The Osage and Quapaw were prominent 
present in the area during the pre-European contact period and maintained a presence in the region until they were forcibly removed in the 19th century due to westward expansion and government policies. Looming ominously in the heart of Independence County is the town of Cushman, populated by 461 people per the 2020 census and retaining an area of merely four square miles. Sinister veil shrouds the town of Cushman. Beneath its unassuming facade lies an enigmatic secret, an intricate subterranean labyrinth that cradles the abodes of a fabled civilization. Whispers speak of the fathomless blowing caves, a subterranean network that shelters a mystifying race, towering at a ghastly height of seven to eight feet. Their haunting moniker, the Blue People, draws from their aberrant skin hue, which defies nature's palette. For every myth conceals a kernel of truth, but here on these tapes, we often find the kernels are more like boulders when you dive deeper. This is yet another mystery that now unfurls within another tape of the Chilling Chronicles of Appalachia After Dark. Before we begin our audio transcript, here are a few key details to know. Richard Shaver was an American writer known for his science fiction stories published in the 1940s and 50s. He gained fame for his controversial Shaver Mysteries series, which was published in the sci-fi magazine Amazing Stories. The Shaver Mysteries series revolved around the stories of an ancient race of beings called the Darrow, D-E-R-O, who were believed to have once inhabited Earth and later moved underground. According to Shaver, these Darrow possessed a advanced technology and were responsible for various supernatural and paranormal phenomena, including UFOs, telepathy, and mind control. The series described the conflict between the Darrow and their counterparts, the Tarot, T-E-R-O, who were supposedly working to protect humanity from the Darrow's malevolent influence. The Shaver Mysteries gained a cult following and sparked numerous debates within the science fiction community. While some believed that Shaver was a great imaginative storyteller of pseudoscience and fantasy, others believed he was presenting the truth and the truth was stranger than fiction and that the messages would reach those who had the capacity to understand and connect the dots within his stories. Bruce Allen Walton, better known by his pen name Branton, claimed to be a former sleeper cell agent for the CIA whose writing revolved around different conspiracy theories relating to secret underground military bases belonging to the CIA and National Security Agency, NSA, underground bases. He tells of being an alien abductee all throughout his childhood while being reared in a Masonic religious fraternity. Branton composed texts such as that of the Branton Files, the Dulce Book, the Battle at Dulce, the Cult of the Serpent, the Secrets of the Mojave, the Omega Files, Grays, Nazis, underground bases, and the New World Order. And then, there is the Underworld Empire, from which comes the excerpt we will now listen to. During the latter part of the 1950s, the Exploration Party had investigated some very interesting caverns, mainly within the area of Arkansas and the surrounding states. At one point, they came across one particular cavern some miles north of Batesville, Arkansas. This was in an area where several caverns were located. Many of these caves, concentrated generally northwest to west of the town of Cushman, have in fact been the subject of some very interesting accounts, suggesting that there might be more than one route to the nether regions below, other than the one discovered by David L. and his friends. There are accounts of several people who have entered some of these caves and were never seen again, or who encountered strange phenomena deep underground, such as electrical failure of flashlights, suggesting possible electromagnetic interference, accounts involving extremely deep caverns, gas pockets encountered at extreme depths, and an account concerning one of the caves west of Cushman, which seemed to have ancient carvings over it depicting various figures. 
and there is even one account which came from an Oklahoma man who was told by a friend of his of being chased from a cavern west of Cushman by a large hairy humanoid who began throwing boulders at him as if annoyingly scaring him out of his territory. At one point David L's group came across one particular cavern near the town. Over a period of years, returning from time to time to this particular cavern, the explorers had crossed underground lakes, followed dead-end leads, explored breakdown areas, investigated numerous cracks and chasms, and steep inclines. One of their most fortunate discoveries was made in a large boulder-strewn breakdown area about halfway between the entrance and an underground lake. They noticed a crack in the path which they had found through the boulders, and, following this crack into the thick of the breakdown, they came across another area where the crevice widened enough to allow them entrance. Following this, they descended for a very great distance, for a very long while, down a sloping 45-degree incline, so steep in places that rope had to be used. This steep sloping passage led them past a couple of horizontal side passages which they followed a few miles to dead ends and continued deeper through at least one more crevice. Eventually they emerged into a large cavernous area, hundreds of feet high and long, which they named Glass Cave because of its features and used it as a central camp in subsequent explorations. The remarkable thing about this cavern, however, was their claim that it was located almost four miles beneath the surface of the earth, which would definitely make it deeper than any other officially recognized cavern. Time and again, they explored the mazes and labyrinths deep in the earth using the glass cave as their central camp. Two passages in the far wall of this chamber, opposite from the crevice through which they first entered the glass cave, were each explored for three days continuously before they decided to turn back. According to David L., these passages still continued onward with no end in sight. Could these have led to the gloomy Hadian-like caverns, which they were to see later, and which they alleged contained gigantic serpents or snakes capable of crushing a human being to death in a few seconds? After some experiments involving airflow within the glass cave, the explorers were able to trace slight air movements to another, as of yet, undiscovered crevice hidden within the wall, not far from the crevice which they had entered from above. This passage, though relatively small, continued still deeper into the earth. They explored the steep incline for what they approximated to be a mile before reaching an area of breakdown. This seemed to be the end of the line, just as they were about to turn back in disappointment from this passage, which had taken them deeper than they had ever been before. One of the members of the team noticed that the light of their carbida lamps seemed to have a faint amber tint to it. All of them were perplexed, wondering what would be causing the phenomena. It was decided that they would all turn off their lamps in order to see if the greenish luminescence remained. They did so, and a minute or so afterwards their eyes adjusted to the darkness and they could faintly distinguish a greenish luminescence, which seemed to emanate from the lowest part of the passage in an area where heavy breakdown seemed to close off any further progress. George White was the first one to make his way to the spot in the breakdown area from which the faint light seemed to emanate, and after removing more rocks, they discovered that still another crack or crevice, barely wide enough for one man to enter at a time, descended vertically from beneath the breakdown. According to David L., White volunteered himself to be the first to explore the crevice, and soon afterwards, he was on his way down. A few minutes passed before those above heard the sound of what they could only guess was George slipping and falling down the crevice. 
After a period of uncertainty, those above, concerned for his safety, were relieved to hear the faint voice of George White rising up from apparently several dozen feet below. They were able to make out his excited words to the effect that he had fallen into a large tunnel and encouraged the others to follow him. They did so, and when they were all in the tunnel, they stood in stunned silence. The passage which stretched out from them in both directions was not like the common natural cavern passages which they had explored for the past few days. In fact, it seemed more artificial than natural. Approximately a dozen feet in height and about the same in width, the tunnel was similar in shape to a subway tunnel, having a domed ceiling and a flat floor. What really caught their attention, however, was the fact that the tunnel was illuminated by a greenish phosphorescence to the point that they did not need their carbide lamps to see their surroundings. The strange luminescence seemed to emanate from the walls of the tunnel itself, which were clear and glass-like, yet at the same time extremely hard. In one direction the lighting effect faded out into blackness, while in the other direction the light seemed to increase. One of the members suggested that the light might be coming from the surface, and that they might be in one of the old mines which existed in the area of the cavern entrance but others brought up the fact that, according to their calculations, they were at least five miles beneath the earth, and therefore the light probably did not come from the surface. Subsequently, the explorers decided to investigate in the direction of the light, since it would allow them to keep some carbide in reserve for their return trip. At one point, the tunnel, which was apparently cut through solid rock much of the way, and then glazed over with the hard transparent substance, opened into a gigantic cavern. Actually, this occurred several times and at intervals, as if those who constructed the tunnel intentionally meant for them to intersect the various cavern systems. Did the ancient builders of this tunnel system possess a combination of gravitometers, X-rays and sounding radars to detect these cavities? Even as it passed through these large caverns, the tunnel still continued in the form of a transparent domed enclosure, still the same shape as before, yet this time the hard transparent substance was in the form of a wall a foot or so thick that protected the group from the outside or cavern environment, and fortunately so, for beyond the luminescent walls were black expanses of gloomy darkness within which they could faintly make out huge moving and slithering figures of what seemed to be giant serpents and other grotesque reptilian creatures, as well as other non-reptilian creatures, including giant insects. If not for the fact that these creatures were physical, tangible things, these dark caverns could have been likely candidates for the legendary Hades of Greek and Hebrew tradition. The most shocking surprise of all, however, occurred on the third day after exploration of this tunnel began, a considerable distance from the crevice from which they entered the tunnel. They were walking along when all of the sudden they turned around and found themselves face to face with a group of human-like beings who stood around seven to eight feet tall. Their skin had a faint pale bluish, almost clay bluish tint to it, and their eyes were relatively large and owl-like. But they were definitely human, according to David L., who was on this particular expedition. The people took out some type of electronic device, apparently some kind of parabolic communicator, and after a few attempts they succeeded in establishing a communication link using the electronic translator. At this point their story becomes even more complex, and the exact series of events in their chronological order are rather undefined. First, the strange people made it known that the tunnel led to a network that went all throughout the earth and to even greater depths. They had certain types of instruments that could monitor from a distance the emotional field or makeup of a person and thus determine their intentions.
it was only because the group was found to possess an emotional makeup indicating relatively non-violent and non-selfish motivations that they were chosen to be contacted. They made it known that the Cavers could have traveled through the underground tunnels for weeks and would not have discovered their city if they did not wish them to. Here then are some of the other incidents which allegedly occurred after the group encountered the strange people, or rather after these people contacted the group. Chronological sequence uncertain. 1. The group learned that the tunnels continued for hundreds of miles at least. After the initial contact, the topsiders were taken to a hidden elevator and were then taken through this to the city where these people resided. This community was apparently made out of a glass-like substance, somewhat like the makeup of the tunnels themselves. 2. Their lifestyle, way of life, society, government, etc., was described as being radically different from that which existed on the surface. These people possessed a book of laws, or a moral code by which they attempted to live. According to David L., if any of their society became violent or became a threat to the rest, they were expelled into the tunnels, given sufficient provisions to make it on their own, and generally forced to seek out their destiny in other parts of the nether regions. This punishment for unrepentant criminals was apparently practiced only on very rare occasions. 3. The technology used by this civilization was very complex and is based largely on the technology of the lost races who lived before the flood and whose demise resulted in the abandonment of the subterranean system, along with all of the sophisticated technology which had been left there as well. The race encountered by David L. and his group allegedly were direct descendants of Noah, and were of a race of explorers who came to the Western Hemisphere some centuries following the Deluge, and discovered and took up residence within the ancient subsystem where they now resided. Some of the technology left by the ancients is still not understood by the people encountered by the speleologists. The group was also shown tremendous dark caverns, miles beneath the city, where the subterraneans had found ancient ruins of this ancient lost race. Some of these buildings were sealed, apparently the desperate act of the vanished race who built them. 4. Some of the caverns, especially the extremely deep ones in which the ancient cities were found, were miles in diameter. Some were pitch black and so still and silent that a whisper could seemingly be heard miles away. Some of the upper caverns through which the tunnel penetrated contained not only serpent-like creatures but also huge, hairy humanoids, perhaps tied in with the Sasquatch family. These, however, were particularly violent in nature, possibly due to their environment and constant proximity to the serpents. Apparently, there was an ongoing conflict between the hairy humanoids and the reptilian creatures in the caverns. According to David L., these hairy giants had faces only a mother could love. On one occasion, their subterranean friends demonstrated some type of handheld beam weapon by pointing it at one of the large serpents, which could be seen through the tunnel walls. The beam melted through the transparent barrier, and the serpent disappeared in a sizzling glow of fire. 5. The group attempted to tell their story to friends of theirs on the surface. Apparently, they made several trips after their first encounter with the blue-skinned race. However, their story was rejected and met with mockery and ridicule. They attempted to gather proof of their visit and made a special trip down under, just for that purpose and succeeded in capturing a giant cave moth which roamed the deeper caverns. They placed it in a bag, and upon returning topside they opened the bag and exposed the creature to the brilliant summer sun. For some reason the sunlight had a disintegrating effect on the insect, and before they could show it to anyone as proof, 
it had dried up, become brittle, and eventually crumbled to dust. After this, they gave up all attempts to get anyone to believe them, and resigned themselves to keep the secret among the twelve individuals who made up the exploration and support teams, that is, until David L. was given permission to reveal the story to the new late Charles A. Marku. Note. Marku incidentally died as a result of a heart attack while exploring the surface areas around the Cushman Caves. His wife described it as a sudden and irrational attack of fear, resulting from a swarm of bees that Charles had encountered. One must realize that fear is one of the most powerful weapons utilized by the infernals who would attempt to blind mankind to conditions taking place in the inner world. However, by the grace of God Almighty, many have been able to defend themselves from the body terror utilized by the reptilians and which can often lead to paralysis, heart attacks, insanity, or even suicide. Eventually, George White decided to remain below with their subterranean friends and on their second to the last trip, they said their goodbyes. They allegedly made one more trip afterwards during which they met with their friend, who was doing well for the last time. The peculiar thing about this incident, according to David, was that shortly after White had joined this underground society, all evidence and records of him ever existing began to mysteriously disappear from the surface. Birth certificates, school records, computer records, bank records, etc., all seemed to vanish apparently the work of someone in a very influential position who was able to erase all evidence that White had ever lived. Some researchers still retain copies of George White's articles from the old UFO periodical nevertheless. This would open up the possibility that this underground race closely monitors events on the surface and even has workers in various influential positions who act as mediators in surface society. Everything points to the fact that this subterranean race prefers its privacy and does not wish to become involved in the political conflict and chaos, which has for untold centuries plagued the surface world by warring factions, constantly fighting over territorial rights, etc. There is apparently much more to this account than we can relate here. However, for various reasons, specific information other than that which we have just related will have to remain confidential. One can seemingly find connections between this account and others, which have been related by other sources. For instance, John Lear has stated to some researchers that certain Apollo astronauts encountered another Terran or Earth-based race on the moon, a race that apparently made it there long before America did, and this 7ft tall, large-eyed race of humans seems to fit the same description as that given by David L. The people that Lear referred to allegedly have an alliance with the Blondes. Is it possible that the underground people contacted by David know of and interact with the Telosians? Whether this small item has any connection with the people allegedly encountered by the speleologists is uncertain, but it was related by John Keel in his book, The Mothman Prophesies. The Cherokees have a tradition, according to Benjamin Smith Barton's New Views of the Origins of the Tribes and Nations of America, 1798 that when they migrated to Tennessee, they found the region inhabited by a weird race of white people who lived in houses and were apparently quite civilized. They had one problem. Their eyes were very large and sensitive to light. They could only see at night. Is it possible that these people may have later taken up a cave, dwelling lifestyle, if they had not done so previously, to allow themselves more comfortable living conditions?
The last portion of this excerpt refers to the moon eye people discussed a few tapes ago, who were described as being short-statured, being three to four feet tall, with pale skin and very large eyes, seemingly too big for their facial structure, whose eyes were so sensitive to the sunlight that they were a mound-dwelling people who only came out at nighttime, with the exception being nights where the moon phase proved to be too bright for their eyes, such as that of the full moon and gibbous moon phases. It may be that the moon eye people and blue people are of some relation, cut from the same cloth. The main difference that we know of is that the moon eye people are always described as being short in stature, like dwarves, while the blue people are rather tall and double the moon eye people's height, as they are described as being seven to eight feet tall. The blue people are described as being a faint, pale bluish, almost clay bluish tint, while the moon-eyed people are described as just being pale and white. However, both groups are described as having relatively large owl-like eyes. So perhaps they come from the same stock and or one or both groups interbred with another group, leaving one to be short and the other to be tall. The blue tint that separates their skin tones could also be due to the silver known to be in the caves within the Ozarks, in conjunction with being cave dwellers as caves are lower in oxygen than the surface. Both of these can cause skin to turn blue and could just be an adaptation along with a mutation that occurred to the blue-eyed people and not the moon-eyed people due to genetic differences and or location differences. There may also be blue moon-eyed people as well for all that is known. However, the similarities are there. As for what occurred in the blowing caves of Cushman, Arkansas, in the 1950s, George D. White had taken a deep interest in extraterrestrials. Despite this, he had been both fond and a skeptic of Shaver's work, as well as a fan of Charles A. Marco, another sci-fi columnist who George was acquainted with and who was even more fond of Richard Shaver's work to the point of holding public lectures based on Richard Shaver's magazine columns. George and his friends, per the excerpt, went exploring the blowing caves of Cushman, Arkansas, and happened upon something that seemed straight out of Shaver Mysteries. That something was an underground society of people he described as blue people. His experience is documented in the excerpt, and George will later return to the surface after his experience in the blowing caves, but eventually he returned to the blowing caves to live the rest of his life out with the blue people. And all evidence of him ever existing on the surface was scrubbed by said blue people. However, before George White's disappearance, he left behind a written account addressed to Charles McCoe to let him know that what he and Shaver wrote about was right after all, and the Terrell and Daryl were real. George felt obligated to do this due to being a borderline skeptic for years. Even when it came to his friend Charles Marco's work, George left this manuscript with a mutual friend to pass along to Charles Marco. But it did not reach Charles Marco until 13 years later. After all, it was not as simple as Googling or looking somebody up on social media back then. If you lost touch with a person back then and they relocated, especially out of the city or state, it would be very hard to locate them again. So this is what occurred. The effect this letter from George had on Charles was so groundbreaking that it ultimately set in motion a series of events that would lead to Charles' premature death as Charles himself went to the blowing caves of Cushman, Arkansas. And you know what they say when you go looking for things. Sometime you find out. Charles ultimately found the end of his life at these caves. It is presumed that whatever technology or abilities the blue people had to judge a person's intention and character came up on the negative side for Charles, resulting in his death. A death described by his very own wife as being a sudden and irrational attack of fear resulting from a swarm of bees that Charles had encountered, ruled officially as a heart attack. 
that occurred while exploring the surface areas around the Cushman Caves. End of tape.